Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of the sexual abuse of minors. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. For too long, Claire Ashman had sacrificed her happiness for the sake of her husband. She hadn't wanted to join the Order of St. Charbel in the first place. She'd expected to only spend a couple of years with a small religious community in South Australia. Almost a decade later, she just wanted it all to be over. But after being confined for so long, she felt dependent on the order, even as it crumbled in front of her eyes. She was a grown woman who had never had a bank account of her own. She didn't know how to start a new life. It took a stiff knock at the door to finally nudge Claire in the right direction. She answered to a sheriff outside, holding an eviction notice. He clearly expected Claire to be crushed by the news, but to his surprise, she smiled and thanked him. No one was happier to see the Order of St. Charbel fall than the women who once called it home. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and its followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we got to know William Cam, leader of the Order of St. Charbel. Cam, also known as Little Pebble, claims to see apparitions of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, and other religious figures. He says he was ordered by God to unite the Christians of the world under his particular banner of conservative Catholicism. This week, we'll follow Cam as he attempts to grow his small community of devotees in New South Wales, Australia. As his influence expanded, so did the demands that he placed on the women and girls in his order. He wasn't satisfied with just taking their money and their freedom. He wanted to exploit them in every way possible. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. In 1993, William Cam was on top of the world. He believed he was taking the first steps to fulfill his miraculous destiny. 
He claimed he would be the last pope to ever lead the Catholic Church. Only then could he prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ and the glorious rapture. While he'd made strides toward his goals, the 43-year-old still had a long way to go. He founded a small community to house his Order of St. Charbel, a group of around 120 followers. But it was a far cry from the billions he'd eventually need on his side. And though it galled him, he wasn't an official part of the Catholic Church. In fact, the Vatican had taken pains in recent years to distance itself from his activities. They warned about Catholics that his teachings were not in line with the official doctrine. Still, Cam felt things were looking up, especially when it came to finances. According to a profit and loss statement filed in 1992, his group had brought in around $124,000 in donations, with expenses just below $97,000. Even still, those profits might have been an understatement. The group's main source of income was from donations made by those living in Camp's community. In exchange for living on the commune, followers were expected to abandon all their worldly possessions, especially real estate. It was common for those moving to the community to sell their existing property and donate the proceeds to the order. According to Albert Cook, one of Cam's earliest followers, the highest echelons of the church, termed the inner circle, were at one point required to give up everything they had. Cook pointed out that the community's motto was, give all, receive all. Complicating matters further, many in Cam's community were elderly, his vision of conservative Catholicism especially appealed to those who wanted a return to tradition in the church. And those were precisely the people who would face the most difficulties if they ever decided to leave and try to start over from nothing. Not only were they at retirement age, making it harder to find a new source of income, but they were more likely to have costly health problems. And because of the way Cam structured his community, all of his followers were dependent on the order for their every need food, schooling, and more. Cam told a different story, however. He regularly preached that the apocalypse would arrive before the new millennium. He insisted that society as they knew it would eventually be ripped apart at the seams and that their order would rise to take its place. He painted a picture of a new world, one ruled by himself and a reformed Catholic church. And if that new era looked anything like the community he established, then it would be a place where no one would have a reason to own property. No one aside from William Cam. He also claimed that those who had donated their possessions would be partially refunded if they ever chose to leave his community. But the Sydney Morning Herald reported that, in practice, those who left were almost never offered the promised compensation. Taking this all into consideration, Cam's financial tactics were undoubtedly exploitative and they may have risen to the level of abuse. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. A 2016 study by Mark Redmond published in the Journal of Adult Protection examined the mechanisms of financial abuse, especially when directed toward the elderly. The paper defined financial abuse as including fraud by abuse of position and fraud by failing to disclose information. That certainly sounds like Cam, who used his status as an apocalyptic prophet to recruit members and solicit donations. The researchers also noted that older adults, like many of those living in Cam's community, were at an increased risk of falling prey to financial abuse. 
the author wrote, In the context of working with vulnerable older adults, it is important to acknowledge that the clergy have a similar level of privilege and access to older people to that enjoyed by GPs, nurses, and carers. In other words, religious leaders like William Cam often have the implicit trust of elderly people. And sometimes there's a fine line between earnestly asking for charitable donations and putting extreme pressure on vulnerable people. Cam spent much of his time siphoning and reappropriating money from his community members. But that was only a single piece of his money-making operation. His earnings were also supplemented by contributions from non-community members, including religious pilgrims and tourists. Because by this point, Cam had spread his miraculous claims around the world. Thanks to his many trips overseas, thousands of faithful in other countries had heard his sermons. Many were particularly fascinated by a clearing on the grounds of the Order of St. Charbel community. That was where Cam claimed the Virgin Mary had appeared to him. On weekends, visitors flocked to the commune by the busload to see the fabled clearing. Of course, the Order made sure to collect their donations along the way. But even that didn't account for every cent Cam's organization was earning. Cam wasn't just taking donations in person from tourists. His international followers also reportedly sent him plenty of income by mail, money that he never publicly reported. One accountant who worked for the group told the Sydney Morning Herald that Cam refused to disclose how much money he was actually earning, even after he was confronted about it. When someone suggested that Cam should be transparent about all of his bank accounts, he dismissed the idea as ridiculous. He insisted that the Virgin Mary had expressly told him to keep that money under his personal control. It was the way Cam always reacted to pointed questions and concerns. For the most part, he didn't bother to come up with realistic explanations for his actions. He didn't have to because he had a convenient one-size-fits-all excuse. God told me to. It was a cheap tactic, but it worked. Framing his every action as ordained by God put his followers in an awkward position. They already believed Cam spoke directly to the Lord. Since they had no way to prove what God did or didn't say, they had to accept his claims without question. The only reasonable alternative was to accuse Cam of lying, that he had never communed with the Lord in the first place. But believing that would be tantamount to blasphemy in the order. It meant that the only recourse for anyone who questioned Cam was to leave the organization entirely. It had taken tremendous sacrifices on the part of Cam's followers to join his community in the first place. Leaving and starting over would likely cause them even more turmoil. Simply put, William Cam had the futures of his followers in the palm of his hand, and he made sure it stayed that way. Cam designed the day-to-day -day routine in his community to isolate his devotees from the outside world. For instance, he expected members to send their children to the private school at his commune. Having a school there gave the children one less reason to step foot outside the order and limited their contact with peers their own age. The instructors also reportedly taught their students that Armageddon was imminent, reinforcing Cam's dogma from a young age. The adults didn't have it much better. While they were on the order's grounds, surrounded by barbed wire, devotees were expected to adhere to Cam's conservative teachings around the clock. That meant they were supposed to conform to regressive gender roles. Cam taught that God wanted women to be subservient to men. The men were tasked with getting jobs and earning money, while women were responsible for having as many babies as possible. 
But that wasn't all. Women were also discouraged from seeking higher education. Instead, they were saddled with the work of maintaining the commune. They were the ones who made lunch and dinner for over a hundred people each day. When they weren't cooking or worshiping, they had to garden the grounds and care for the children. But those were far from the only obligations Cam's followers had to accept. In addition to mandatory church services, followers were called to prayer three times every day. Life in the commune just outside the town of Naura completely revolved around Cam, his apparitions, and his prophecies. If followers ever had a religious or personal question, they were told to write it down in a letter and send it off straight to their leader. Supposedly, Cam passed on these inquiries to the Virgin Mary herself, then recorded her responses. Whatever Mary said, or whatever Cam wrote down, was law. Followers weren't allowed to go against his advice. And over time, Cam's orders grew more deranged. In 1993, he took the next step forward in his twisted bid to control his followers. Coming up, William Cam targets minors. Hi, listeners. I'm Tom Morton, host of Parcast's landmark show, Real Pirates, where we set sail alongside history's most notorious villains. Dive into their world during the golden age of piracy in an immersive audio experience. Listen as experts reveal the reality of life under the black flag. There is no evidence that I have ever seen of any pirate burying their treasure. Catch our previous episodes on Major Steve Bonnet, Charles Vane, and Blackbeard. Blackbeard himself as a pirate was a larger-than-life figure. He would put candles into his hair to frighten his victims. And still to come are the stories of Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Henry Morgan. Join us for new episodes every Monday as we follow the rise and fall of the most legendary outlaws ever to sail the seven seas. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By 1993, William Cam had almost total control over the followers living on his compound in New South Wales, Australia. They were taught that his divine destiny was to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ. But that wasn't enough for 43-year-old Cam. He turned to God for guidance. And according to him, the Lord had more in store for Little Pebble. In July of 1993, God dropped another bombshell. According to Volume 2 of Cam's autobiography, The Testament and Mystical Life of William Cam, that month he received a holy relic called Holy Shining Thing from the Lord. He wrote that the relic was white and gold, six to eight inches long, and looked like a wide pencil. At first, Cam wasn't sure what the shining thing meant, though the phallic shape might have been a clue. It took some time poring over scripture for him to realize his destiny had been changed once again. 
He already believed he would lead the Catholic Church into the next era of history. He believed he would do battle with the Antichrist during the end of days. But he realized he wasn't so sure what would happen after Armageddon. Now, however, he had an idea. According to him, the holy shining thing he'd received meant he was going to become the father of all nations. After the unworthy and non-believers of the world were purged during the rapture, William Cam would be responsible for repopulating the earth. And to do that, he'd need more wives. A lot more. In his words, he would take 12 queens as his mystic brides. Each would be responsible for giving birth to one of the 12 new tribes of Israel. And then there would be the 72 additional princesses he was supposed to bond with, too. In all, he claimed he was supposed to mystically take on 84 spouses, and they were all going to bear his children. Cam claimed that Bettina, his second wife, was to be his first queen. Apparently, his former spouse Anne, who'd borne him four children, no longer had a place in the prophecy. This was far from the first time that heaven had expanded the number of women in the Little Pebble's life. Just three years earlier, he'd betrayed his first wife to be with Bettina, who was only 17 when they were mystically married. Even though Cam allegedly did this on the Virgin Mary's advice, it tore apart his community in the process. But this latest prophecy about queens and princesses was one of Cam's most divisive yet, and the final straw for some of his followers. Now, some feared that his supposed prophecies were just excuses to live out his perverted fantasies. Had God really chosen William Cam to have 12 wives while also serving as the final pope of the Catholic Church? Upon hearing the news, a few of his disciples were disgusted. They lost their faith and abandoned the order of St. Charbel outright. And the skeptical members of his order were right to be concerned, because sometime in 1993, Cam started forcing himself on a 15-year-old follower. The girl's name wasn't released to the public. For our conversation today, we'll refer to her as Julie. She said that Cam repeatedly kissed her and fondled her breasts. He also bombarded Julie with love letters, claiming she would be his queen and that she'd been chosen by God to be one of his mystical wives. On July 11, 1993, he wrote to Julie, I don't want to push you. Our first kiss was lovely, but wait for the next one. They get bigger and better all the time. In later letters, he asked if she had ever thought about making love to him. He promised that they could have sex any time she wanted and claimed that he knew how to prevent her from getting pregnant. It's impossible to fully understand the complex emotions Julie must have gone through. For years, she'd been taught that William Cam was chosen by a merciful God to save the world. In Cam's community, his word and the word of the Lord were one and the same. Yet here he was, forcing her to do things that disgusted her. Any questions were likely met with vague assurances that God's will was beyond human comprehension. In other words, though everything seemed wrong, she had to accept Cam's advances because the Lord had willed it. Many cult leaders like Cam seek to dominate their followers. They get pleasure from ordering others around and forcing their devotees to do their bidding. The more total their control, the better. And dictating the sex lives of their followers is a common tactic. A 1997 article on the psychosexual exploitation of women in cults shed some light on the motivations of domineering men like these. The paper by Yanya Lalich, published in the Cultic Studies Journal, reads, 
Those who wish to dominate others discover that their power increases as their areas of influence over the other person become more intimate and personal. Therefore, controlling someone's sexuality or sex life is an effective method of all-inclusive manipulation and control. Once sexual control is in place, no part of life is left untouched by the cult leader's influence. It's difficult to imagine a more invasive and twisted act. Cam deliberately targeted an underage girl who was raised under the ultra-conservative brand of Catholicism he'd masterminded. In effect, he'd created a double-edged sword. Because of her age, Julie may have been naive about the crimes Cam was committing. On top of that, she'd been brought up in an insular environment where sexuality was considered a taboo subject. So it was only natural that at first, Julie kept Cam's abuse under wraps. Instead of confessing to her parents or some other earthly authority, she did as she was taught. She sent letters begging the Lord and the Virgin Mary for spiritual advice. These were read by Cam. Cam responded to Julie's questions and emotional turmoil with bold-faced manipulation. In his replies to her letters, he claimed to channel Mary and gradually nudge the doubtful girl further under his thumb. He even told her explicitly, posing as Mary, that she should be discreet about what was going on between them. Julie kept things quiet for years as the situation escalated, but eventually she sought out her mother's help. Around 1997, she showed her mom Cam's love letters and told her what he'd done. Her mom was reportedly disgusted by the contents, but couldn't bring herself to confront Cam about them. She believed he was a prophet of God and therefore wasn't willing to question his actions. Cam had a blank check to do whatever he wanted, and predictably, things only got worse from there. Julie later wrote her own letter to a friend, stating, Mom says if you're desperate to lose your virginity, then do it with William and bear God's children. The message suggested that the sexual abuse had been normalized, not just for the girls Cam was preying on, but the adults in his community as well. Because the disturbing truth was that Cam had targeted more than one of his underage followers. In 1994, a year after he started to prey on Julie, he told another teenager, a 14-year-old, that she was going to be his next queen. This girl, who we'll call Sarah, faced even more severe abuse. Over the course of five years, Cam sexually assaulted her repeatedly. He did this both in his private bedroom as well as at a motel in a nearby town. He was shameless. In 1994, he wrote a letter claiming that the word of God didn't apply to him, at least when it came to marriage. Since he was a prophet, he got to play by different rules. He didn't even bother to disguise his intentions, writing, I am permitted to have intercourse with all princesses without violating the law. All will conceive their children from me, even the married ones, because I carry the holy seed. For the most part, it seems that the remaining members of the community accepted Cam's pronouncements without question. Their reactions must have left the abused girls feeling that they had no one to turn to for help. They tried to tell Cam to stop, but he refused to listen. At some point, one of the girls became pregnant with his child. And still, the adults around here did nothing to intervene. A few members described Cam's sexual abuse as somewhat of an open secret in the community. One follower, Claire Ashman, joined the Order of St. Charbel in 1997. 
She was quickly chosen as one of Cam's 72 princesses, though she didn't know what exactly that entailed. She was an adult in her late 20s. However, she said that she did eventually realize what was happening to the underage girls in the cult around the year 2000. According to her account, the red flags would have been nearly impossible to ignore. She said that all over the community, young women aged 16 and 17 were turning up pregnant. Cam told his followers that the babies were from his holy seed, but had been conceived without sex. Like so many of his other claims, it would have been a miracle if it was the truth. In all, Cam is suspected of fathering more than 20 children with the girls and women in his compound. Claire Ashman said that many of the parents of his princesses knew about the abuse. Some may have even celebrated it, honored that their daughters had been chosen to bear the holy babies. Others simply threw up their hands, unwilling to question what they excused as God's unknowable will. Everyone else was left in an uncomfortable middle ground. Some correctly recognized the abuse as wrong, but felt they had no recourse to fight back. Claire Ashman begged her husband to let her take the children and flee the cult. When he refused, she decided all she could do was keep her head down and try to protect her family. She had eight children to worry about, no money, no friends, and no way out of the community on her own. She was trapped. That was exactly how Cam wanted things to be. He didn't want his followers to think for themselves. He didn't want them to be able to appeal to an authority higher than himself. That's why he worked so hard to make his actions synonymous with those of God. And through that lens, he may have viewed the children themselves as just another tool of his control. Perhaps he encouraged women in the order to have as many kids as possible, not to repopulate the earth, but to bind their parents tighter to his community. Countless women were locked in Claire Ashman's exact situation. Their husbands were in control of the family's income and used God as an excuse to head the household however they wanted. Meanwhile, the women were given no power to truly raise their children. The best they could do was to fly under the radar and make a dark compromise for the sake of their babies. But ultimately, Cam's control may have been more tenuous than he realized. He may have assumed that no one dared to question his actions because they believed they were all divinely endorsed. But in reality, dissent was brewing under the surface, and it was only a matter of time before word got out. Coming up, William Cam is disgraced. Now back to the story. By the early 2000s, William Cam had been sexually abusing underage girls on his compound near Naura for at least seven years. As time went on, more and more of the young women became pregnant with his children. Cam kept the girls silent through psychological manipulation, claiming the Virgin Mary had ordered him to have sex with them. They were fulfilling his latest divine prophecy, bearing his children to repopulate the earth after the coming apocalypse. But by 2002, some of his victims were full-grown adults. Now that they had children of their own, they became increasingly concerned for the safety of their families, and they were mature enough to understand the horrors they'd been put through. In July, some of these women came together to contact police. We've already discussed a couple of their stories. The survivor we referred to as Julie accused Cam of molesting her over a two-month period in 1993 when she was only 15 years old. 
She claimed that Cam kissed her, fondled her, and sexually assaulted her. And she had corroborating evidence, presenting the scores of love letters she received from Cam to law enforcement. Over the course of a few months, Cam wrote provocative messages to Julie, telling her that she had sexy legs and that he knew she desired him. While the letters didn't provide direct evidence of Cam's guilt on their own, they were undeniably disturbing, especially in light of the fact that Cam was nearly three times Julie's age when he wrote them. Investigators were left with a frightening picture of what life was like for young girls in the Order of St. Charbel. The Child Protection Enforcement Agency quickly formed a team to investigate the accusations. The group prepared their case over the next few weeks. In August, they arrested William Cam and formally charged him with multiple counts of aggravated sexual assault for his actions with the 15-year-old. Cam was blindsided. He publicly denied the allegations, claiming that the disgusting letters were nothing more than innocent flirtations or jokes. He didn't specify what exactly was supposed to be funny. In 2005, the 55-year-old stood trial on four counts of aggravated indecent assault and one for aggravated sexual intercourse. He was found guilty and was sentenced to three and a half to five years in prison. At some point, his second wife, Bettina, divorced him. She claimed she'd been unaware of the extent of the sexual abuse at the compound. Two years after Cam's first conviction in 2007, another survivor, who we referred to as Sarah, brought allegations against him. We've already examined her story as well. She claimed that the cult leader sexually assaulted her from ages 14 to 19 and impregnated her. Authorities took Cam to court a second time while he was still serving his previous sentence. He was once again found guilty and his term was extended to a maximum of 10 years in prison. Despite the evidence against him, Cam remained as unyielding as ever, adamantly refusing to acknowledge his guilt. On the website for the Order of St. Charbel, the group claimed that the media's portrayal of Cam's trial and convictions was biased against him. He showed absolutely no remorse for his actions, which likely stood in the way of any potential rehabilitation. A 2011 study from psychologist June P. Tangney and others found that guilt might be crucial for offenders if they truly seek to change their ways. The researchers wrote that prison inmates who were more prone to feeling guilt were also less likely to blame others for their own actions. The authors recommended that offenders be encouraged to empathize with their victims, acknowledge their guilt, and attempt to make amends. But all that seemed to be lost on William Cam. And while he served his time, he maintained his grip on a small group of his followers. Some remained at the commune, patiently awaiting their messiah's return. It's unclear exactly how the group fared while its leader was behind bars, but it's likely that conditions deteriorated. Without Cam's sermons and miraculous claims to drive donations, the order's income probably dried up. Even so, the community managed to cling to life, at least until 2014. That year, the Daily Telegraph visited the compound and found the buildings were run down. No doubt many were hanging on because they were still expecting Cam's imagined apocalypse to materialize. But if so, they were living on false hope. Hope that was stoked by their dear leader. In November of 2014, William Cam was released from prison at the age of 64. He immediately tried to return to his commune. Luckily, the local community fought back. 
Following public outcry, officials clarified that Cam would not be allowed back in the Shoalhaven region where his followers resided. He would also be subject to 24-7 surveillance, with his finances and activities closely monitored by law enforcement. The move may have blocked Cam from reoffending and perpetuating his sexual abuse of young women, but it didn't stop him from stoking connections with his old followers. At some point after leaving prison, Cam remarried. His third wife had been a member of the Order of St. Charbel for 18 years. He also changed his last name. Since then, he largely stayed out of the public eye until just recently. In February 2022, Cam was back in court. This time, he was accused of contacting teen girls through social media, violating a condition of his release. Meanwhile, he continues to deny his guilt, claiming that the investigations and convictions against him were devilish plots to discredit his spiritual movement. At the time of this recording, Cam's case is still underway. It's a predictable response, a narrative that's completely out of touch with reality and centers Cam as a righteous figure fighting against a corrupt world. It encapsulates his entire career as a spiritual leader and abuser. William Cam has always offered conspiracy theories in place of simple facts. Over the course of decades, he repeatedly made false prophecies and provided no real explanation when his predictions didn't come to pass. Anytime his twisted and perverse actions were questioned, he claimed he was only following orders from the Virgin Mary or some other agent of God. He took advantage of the deep faith of his followers to abuse them and their children under the ridiculous guise of saving the world. Meanwhile, the true saviors are the women and girls Cam victimized. Despite unimaginable social pressure and isolation, these brave survivors dared to speak out against Cam at the height of his influence. Thanks to them, he was forced to face justice for his offenses. But more importantly, he was prevented from committing further crimes against the people who put their trust in him. It would be a true blessing if the world never heard from William Cam ever again. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Cults. We'll be back next week with another episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Gatovich. This episode of Cults was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Chelsea Wood and Brian Petrus. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs> <laughs>